Hi, welcome along to the Current State of Music podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cracknell. I am a mix engineer, work out of my own studio, Goldtone Studio in Brighton in the UK. And the point of this podcast is to find out about what's going on in music right now but and to what that means to the various people that we're talking to. But it also gives an opportunity to hear people's stories. And I think that's where the real interest lies, is finding out the journeys people have been on and that are still on to kind of create a career in music and to sustain it. And the sort of, obviously, the hurdles people overcome and the people that they meet and the people that have an influence. And I think all these things have got a very big part to play because no one's just managed to create a career in music or a successful career in music kind of on their own. As they say, no man is an island. And I think that's very much the case in music. It's about the relationships you make and the things that make you, the things that make you who you are. So the kind of the trials that you have to go through and the hurdles that you have to kind of get over. And so that's what's been like my driving force for this podcast, really. I started off just wanting to talk to people, but I found that the more I talk to people, the more they open up and kind of the more interesting kind of stuff you get from them, really. It's not just talking about music and kind of, I use this bit of kit or, you know, like I did this, I bought some records and off I went sort of thing. It's kind of deeper than that. And that is, for me, for me, where that's where the interest lies. Uh, regular listeners will probably hear that I've got a terrible cold. I've had a real cold the last week or so, but I'm, luckily I don't think it's the coronavirus. And speaking of coronavirus, we managed to kind of get this interview done just before he put himself kind of locked down, cancelled all his clients coming in. And yeah, we spent a couple of hours literally sort of the day before he decided to do that and we chatted about it and it's quite an interesting time that we're living through and that was why I kind of wanted to put this one out and not keep it until season three. Uh, I wanted to put this out as soon as possible because it's quite a long form, goes over a couple of hours, so I might split it in two or it might just stay as one. And also because, well, I guess a lot of people are in people aren't kind of maybe people engaging in sort of these podcasts and things a little bit more and everyone needs content right and everyone needs stuff to listen to if you're going to be stuck indoors then uh, you need some entertainment so here is my little contribution to that Uh, if it's your first time on board then uh, we've certainly got some others for you to go at We've got people like Mr. Scruff, Fred Deakin from Lemon Jelly, Fat Cat Records, uh, Mr. Thing, uh, Laura Vane, all sorts of people covering the spectrum of music. And they're all genuinely interesting conversations, I would say. I've met some of my heroes through doing this and I've really enjoyed talking to them and having the time to sit down and not just ask them what their favourite record is and all that sort of bollocks but actually kind of get under the hood a bit and talk to them about you know their story and their journey so it's inspirational to me and I hope it's inspirational to you as well 
So this time out, it's with a man called Ian Archer. He is a singer, a songwriter. He's had his own career as an artist. Um, he also writes music for other people. He collaborates with people. He mixes their music for them. Basically, he plays guitar. He's probably got a guitar collection that's worth more than probably half my house. Uh, who knows? But that's kind of not the point. The point is, is that he's one of the nicest people you could meet, and I don't mean that in a kind of cloying way. I mean that is in he's just really positive, really upbeat, always willing to kind of have a go at new ideas and to challenge things and to kind of not be stuck in the ground at all. And it's a really kind of enjoyable person to be around him and his family his wife Miriam who was also the musical director of the recent Snow Patrol thing that he was part of they went on tour with Snow Patrol because he'd reworked a lot of their old songs and she was the musical director for that they were both on stage so seeing kind of two of your friends that you normally see in a domestic setting kind of up on a stage in front of a few thousand people is quite a pleasure I'd say it's a real pleasure. It's really exciting to see them doing that, to see their kids in the crowd watching them doing that. What that must feel like seeing your parents on stage must be quite mind-blowing, I guess. Or maybe it's really normal. I don't know. I don't think we crossed that subject, actually. Maybe we could have done. Maybe there'll be a part two at some point. But yeah, Ian, he was part of Snow Patrol in, in his sometimes still is part of Snow Patrol. He's worked with loads of people like Jake Bug, uh, James Bay, Liam Gallagher. Uh, he works with up-and-coming artists. He's always moving. He's always doing stuff and he's always got new things on the go. He's part of the Ivan Avella panel who uh, decide who gets that prize every year. He's very much part of the community in music and I think that's says a lot about his personality he doesn't just take it for granted that he does this thing he actually sort of gives back and and helps people out and I think that's an admirable quality and I, I'm really proud to call him a friend actually we've hung out quite a lot recently I've helped him build some stuff in his studio and uh, I think yeah I'd say my life is more enjoyable for having him around in it and uh, I hope you enjoy these next couple of hours in the company of my mate Ian Archer have you had a guitar built yeah I just had a guitar built just had this oh that Jag master built in California so that's that's the only one what did you ask for that doesn't come as sort of standard Um, I mean it's definitely a bit of a hybrid of various bits that I liked about other things Um, the electrics are all um, Johnny Marr from the Johnny Marr Jaguar as opposed to the original right um, but the neck and the fretboard radius and all, all that kind of stuff is my spec um, the the bridge is a very particular Fender bridge that 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 seems to be the right one. If it felt like the right one to me to kind of keep the strings in place, but still get that uh, Jaguar twang. 
because otherwise like I've played them live a lot and the, the strings if you hit them hard sometimes the strings jump off the saddle so you have to put this right. thing that bolts the strings right down at an angle behind the behind the bridge yeah and then you lose all the twang and all the tone of why you're playing the Jaguar. So this this thing is really really cool. So yeah, there's a bu- there's a bunch of things. And then can anyone a- roll up and just get something like that built, or do you have to be yeah. like in the in the fender in a circle? No, no, you can get it built. It's just it's 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 a lot, you know, because yeah. one guy there is one master builder right who builds the whole thing, and so there's a lot of super care and attention to detail his name signed on the back of it right. and you know it's like it's, it's, so it's so, like, almost like a piece of art yeah it's beautiful it's like, like someone's taken you know it took, you know, it took about eight months wow. to arrive so it's so a lot of care and attention in it you know and the block inlay and I just think you don't see a lot of a lot of Jaguars with block inlay and it looks super cool you know <laughs> so there's certain things like that that I was just like I want a Jag you know yeah yeah, so that's a, it's a beauty actually. Everybody's uh, loving that one. James Bay, especially. Every time he's in the studio these days, he's like, "Where's that Jag?" <laughs> you know. So you're actually like okay with people picking it up and playing it. Oh yeah, I want people to play. Because I always see. It. I remember being in the studio with Nick, and this guy came in to show us this new thing that he wanted us to kind of get involved with. It was a bit like an iPad, but with loads of connectivity. Before, just before iPads came out. Then iPads came out and it sort of destroyed it. But and he sort of walks in, and I think he must have had some Charlie beforehand. Do you know what I mean? He mm-hmm. was really lively and a bit sweaty. <laughs> and uh, he just sort of, I know, like I don't know how expensive Nick's Les Paul was, but I know it's this guy. You know, nearly shit himself, and he's, he was like, "Oh my god, look at that!" Yeah. And just sort of picked it up and started playing it. And I was like, "Whoa, whoa! Surely that's..." Yeah. Surely that's yeah, not cool, hallowed right? ground kind of thing. Yeah, but the funny thing is, like, they're just all better if they get played. You know, they also, like the best sounding guitar in the studio is my Dreadnought, and it sounds so good because it's loud and Dreadnought, and it sounds amazing. That's because I've played it every show since I was 24 or something, you know, like, yeah. and, and play, it gets played every day in here, and and the ones that don't get played don't sound as good. It's right. just like, it transforms the guitar, so you kind of want them to get played, yeah. but you also don't want them to get mistreated. Like the baritone, somebody I discovered the other day, someone had tried to tune the baritone to concert pitch, and it had been sitting at concert pitch for a while, and I was like, oh, what idiot did this? <laughs> like, it's not patently not a concert pitch guitar. So there are moments like that where you're like, oh, that's just part and parcel of have yeah. a ton of great instruments and people in the studio you know I have to go out someone will pick up an instrument something will happen it's alright it's remediable you know it's yeah. part of the it's part of the I guess there's a line the between kind of a tool that you use to create your art and something that's kind of beyond that precious to you yeah and I just keep them all I don't really put anything massively aside no. but that baritone as well is another is another thing it's absolutely beautiful and I really and it's pristine and it's gorgeous it yeah. sounds amazing yeah and I, I'm really it's sort of quite new so I'm quite protective of it whereas yeah, yeah. this thing's you know the jag is is relic anyway so another bash in that isn't a big deal <laughs> do you know what I mean but that thing the thing about that baritone is when people pick it up songs come out of it I mean 
you know, it's it's a yeah. Well, you gave me a you handed it to me a little while ago, didn't? You? And just straight as soon as you hit a note, it's like, oh my god, this yeah. thing sings, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it's it's that thing like when you're writing, you want the minute you play an instrument and it's so, it just has a different harmonic tone to it that it just generates something else out. it pulls something out of you melodically that you might not do in other circles you play different chords you do different yeah. things you know and baritone acoustics you know are are fairly rare you don't really you don't really I don't walk into many studios and see them you know no. so, and I kind of always on a little bit of a quest for anything that that that'll generate a new idea you know yeah out of somebody and that's that's definitely one of the one of the the beautiful instruments that does that okay well let's um should we start all right that's just come a bit ahead. of guitar chat mm-hmm. all right come on introduce yourself uh my name is ian archer i am a songwriter producer artist musician um Master of Mischief, uh, and um, I spend most of my time these days uh, holed away in my studio in Hove. But um, for a long period of time, I performed as a solo artist and then um, under the name of Archer, and then in various bands um, as a guitarist and uh, yeah lots of lots of various live uh, moments of live experience along the way um, but predominantly I'm much more in a record making mode these days we'll we'll get into some of that as we talk is that too much of an introduction I don't know if I went no no it's fine I don't intend to edit this at all I was going on a could be a two on part. a tangential <laughs> ride. We can make it a two. <laughs> if it clocks in over an hour and a half, we'll just cut it in half and it'll go out as two parts. You can That's tell me to shut up anytime. No, time. It's fine. <laughs> um, okay, so going back in time to your sort of earliest memories of music, was there a point where you sort of remember hearing something and thinking, "Oh my god, what's that?" Or is there any sort of moments in your childhood where music became sort of important to you? Yeah, I mean, the music. Music was really important in the sense that my <clears throat> music was in the house all the time. My dad had a huge vinyl collection, predominantly of uh, really old American gospel records. Right. Um, and it, but also, you know, some forty fives that were pretty soon as well. You know, like kind of. For his old day tripper, which I remember, um, my brother and I just rinsing even from like when we were sort of four years old on on his turntable. So then we we I think pretty naturally we were just really really drawn to the music that was going on at the time. But to talk to pop, Stephen T's even yeah. at sort of four and five years old, yeah, yeah. It sort of seemed like just a natural part of love and music and where was this we lived in Bangor um, a town a seaside town in Northern Ireland near Belfast um, so that led to a lot of forays to the record shop even at that age and I yeah. can remember like um, 
pocket money, you know, like hounding my parents for pocket money every week to go to the local. Uh, there's a ring road near our house and there's kind of a really dangerous road and then a massive <laughs> shopping center and my brother and I would, would leg it at times on our own to yeah. Stuart Miller, the shop in the, in the, in the big store up there where, where we, and we'd come back armed with a lace and pick whatever it was that caught our imagination in yeah. the top 40 at that point you seen on top of Pops and I can remember like what was the first what was the first record do you remember I feel like maybe it was moment? Heart of Glass like Blondie Heart of Glass right. might have been um, or Sunday Girl maybe was the first thing I bought um, and then the second thing I remember say it's, it's funny earlier we were talking about Gary Newman and um, the moment where I saw Gary Newman on top of the Pops looking like an android yeah um, just completely blew my mind like and the sound of the record our friends electric I just yeah. I heard that record and, and saw him and as a sort of I was such a sci-fi not as and st- still am um, and it just absolutely captivated me and so yeah. the sound of synthesizers and all you know the sort of future yeah, it seemed new, didn't it? Because it was a break from sort of guitar, just the traditional band setup, and it was like, hang on, what are they? What's that? Instrument? What is that? Yeah, what is what is that thing? Um, who is that? Maybe, maybe he's got wires inside him. You know, yeah. it's not, it's, it, it, your imagination as a kid is, is fantastic. So I just immediately went out, bought that Tube Army track. Um, later on, we got Cars. You know, so so there was definitely. But then, no, the first record I ever bought, what am I talking about, was Living on Milk and Alcohol, Dr. Feelgood. That was my first, first right. single purchase. Um, what was it drew you to that? Uh, the rebelliousness of it, right. and the fact that my parents would absolutely wake out if they heard really? me play it. Um, but also, yeah, just the rambunctious, infectious, um, snarly attitude of yeah. Dr. Feelgood, you know. And... Um, yeah, there, I, you know, I grew up in a very religious context, in, in, a, in a very strict sort of Baptist church situation, and um, inevitably moments like that where I was like, "Wow, this stands adjacent to everything and everybody in my world. Yeah. This is kind of cool. <laughs> what happens when I bring this?" How in? did that? Or um, well, how did your parents kind of then take to that? Actually, I look back and I think they were incredibly tolerant. You know, I think um, they certainly didn't confiscate that record, which right. I think is completely to their credit. Although maybe at times they wish they had. <laughs> but um, but yeah, they they, they were very uh, tolerant. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say embracing, yeah. but but. They, they didn't come in and I cannot remember once when anyone came in and told us to turn that music that terrible music down yeah that's, you know? that's kind of a cool thing isn't yeah, it yeah. they didn't impress their yeah. thing on you they let you give you that mm-hmm. space and there would have been little little you know there would have been little moments I'm sure but I think my sensibilities you know have have uh, you know there are certain things that are really kind of like um, I don't know very unpalatable at times in music but I don't think my taste ever 
kind of veered towards that. Yeah. You can kind of tell when something's at play, and you can kind of tell when something's got a kind of avarice to it. Yeah. And I'm, I, I guess maybe that's why, because I was never really attracted to anything that was that, that had seriously sort of, you know, um, grubby or malicious. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Backdrop to it. Yeah. Um, but even if I had, I don't know what they might have been like. Yeah. So how did that that sort of progress from sort of buying records at your local shopping centre to sort of how did that move forward into some? When did you pick up a guitar, for instance? Um, I picked up a guitar a few times when I was a kid, like like when I, you know, pre-teen sort of thing, and put it back down. My dad played, and he had a kind of he'd had a few great. Really, really lovely guitars, you know, some some like beautiful kind of hollow body jazz guitar, that Ibanez jazz guitar that my brother and I just loved looking at. It's just like phenomenal, yeah. beautiful thing, and he sold it, and we always sort of practically wept at times. Where you're like, why did you sell that guitar? Um, so he, there were always guitars in the house. Did you ever ask him why he sold it? Um, I don't think he could really say why no and good I, reason. oh no it didn't tune that's why so right it, it didn't tune um and so so the the guitar thing was always there i tried a few times i i, I think really when you're a kid when you're little and you're kind of under 10 11 years of age really your muscle your finger muscles in your hands it's very difficult to get to this dexterity to be able to hold down strings and get your fingers to do what you want them to do so I've actually, with our kids, I've kind of just stopped their guitar lessons in a way because I'm kind of like, it's cool, but yeah. they can wait, discover it themselves, figure it out when they've got the strength and the ability to be able to do what they need to do. And I think the minute you start to hit early teens and your muscles start to kick in, your body changes, Yeah. then you can... Piano is a different thing. Piano doesn't require a level of strength. Yeah, you yeah. Know. But I see that with my Charlie. Like, he's desperate. You know, I've set him up with a lamp, he's got a guitar, but he uses my little like bass ukulele so it's got big thick strings on it and that's mm -hmm. the one that he can actually change the notes on because he, yeah. he yeah. doesn't have to press it that hard. Yeah. And it's making the sound it's actually making a sound that you're hoping it's gonna make. Yeah. Whereas you play a piano and it just makes the sound that yeah. you want it to make. It's yeah. like it's a gift. And guitar's just a just a struggle and that's why I put it down. It was like I was trying to do it, but it all just felt too messy. You know, yeah. it's like I'm never gonna get this together. So then, um, to be honest, like I started playing really seriously shortly after I really screwed my life up. Um, I think a lot of things were sort of coming apart at the seams in our sort of family life in general um, for a period of time, right. and I went on an absolute like. 13 year old midnight many midnight rampages with friends right snuck out of the house well just just went a little bit nuts yeah and and then one night we were hauled into uh, the police station and um like read the just read, read the riot act yeah, yeah literally yeah. um and that was a total, total game changer for me because, like, my social life fell apart. My yeah. kind of 
and just you know had had a fair old sense of shame actually yeah. at the end of it. Do you know what I mean? I've been a real wee rogue, yeah. and I've been reacting to a lot of stuff that was beyond my control. Can kind of reflect on that, but I had been a total dick, and so I picked up the guitar, and at that point I started like it just became my savior. Yeah, it was like. I could channel all of the depression that at that point I was, uh, you know, it was, it was, mornings were bleak, you know, and and guitar, it was just the first thing. <laughs> it's like eyes open, pick that up, start playing, you know. Yeah. And uh, did it feel like it sort of came naturally, as if you were sort of meant to do it? Well, at that point, I, I it's like physically, I was at a point where I was able to make it do what I wanted it to do and, yeah. I, and and I felt like it comply like that was that was the rem, the remarkable thing at that point was that I started to go whoa that's that sounds good yeah. that sounds good and then learned a little bit more and initially my dad was going to show me a few things and a few bits um, and then I spent I was just spending days and days and days playing along with all my favourite records like just yeah. playing and playing and playing so I guess you had some sort of musical knowledge that you knew what sounded good to you, or what sounded good to you, do you know what I mean? Like through what sounds like a varied sort of pile of music. And then that helps you, I guess, when you start playing something, you kind of know what what sounds good and what doesn't sound good, and you know how to start. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I haven't really thought of it like that, but I guess yeah, if you've been if you've been listening to a lot of different yeah. stuff, a bunch of old gospel records rattling around the house yeah. for years, as well as a load of eighties pop music. Yeah. Um, um and late seventies I guess, pop pop. Um uh, yeah, there was definitely a sense of yeah, here's a sound that I wanna make and another and you know, my dad would have been really into like Shadows and Elvis and a lot of that stuff too. He had a real background in rock and roll, yeah. but fell much more into gospel music. Um, but, uh, but but he was a total Teddy boy back in the day. So we'd been really exposed to a lot of rock and roll as well, which I really enjoyed and, and uh, I've certainly rinsed that side of things as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was a matter of kind of going, oh, that sounds good, that feels good, that sounds like that record, or maybe even touches, you know, the hem of sounding a bit like yeah, that yeah, record, yeah. you know. Um, but I got very, very into, very quickly into the theory and the mechanics of sort right. of lead guitar playing like that. Right. That became my mission in life to play out. You know, to really, and you particularly wanted to be like lead guitar. Was that kind of looking oh. more at like heavy metal kind of lead guitar? Oh, that shredding? became my mo really? in life. I was, <laughs> I, yeah, I would listen my headphones at night, staring out at the skylight, and imagining ripping solos. You know, yeah, in front of thousands of people. You know that that yeah, totally. That became my. But I was, you know, super in, into. I think my, my tastes have been really broad, maybe because of that backdrop, I don't know, but the tastes were so broad that, you know, I would have loved everything from kind of, I'd be listening to everything from, like, Clapton to Richard Marks, or to, to, like, Van Halen to, um, you know, 
I'm trying to think what other to like um, Alda Miola to like you know the, uh, Django Reinhardt to yeah. like like it didn't matter what what stylistically it yeah. was if there was a big freaking guitar solo in the middle of it I was happy you're all in <laughs> yeah totally you know? but I think that's that's maybe one of the things isn't it is because a lot of people have their right I listen to this music or I'm part you know this is my aesthetic so this is what I'm going to stick to but I sort of feel that the people that or people that I talk to that kind of end up making music they've always they find fascination in, in lots of different music mm-hmm. you know they haven't just got like right I'm I'm a goth that's all I'm going to listen to Yeah. they're like well I like this but I also like this and I like that and that's completely different to this but I find something in all of it yeah absolutely absolutely it, and, and it's interesting like during that period of time I have an older brother Paul who is also a um, phenomenal songwriter and, and musician in a He's a band now called Burning Codes. It, like, it's insanely prolific songwriter, but he uh, was on a parallel journey. And, and well, I'd mentioned him before because we were kind of buying all those records together. But Paul kind of just became besotted with the indie music of the day, and so like The Smiths, My Bloody Valentine, you know. Spirit Destiny, PJ Harvey Record, you know, like just um, all of the seismic pixies, all of the seismic records of the day in that. Yeah. It, it, on that side of things, he just was chewing them up, you know, and, and we'd spend hours of solitary time in his bedroom, like a classic kind of indie teenager, where I was completely, mad, I mean, probably everything that I was, the, the the vast majority of stuff that I was listening to at that point was very American, very party music, you know, that old, you know, it was all, um, it was all much more demonstrative. Yeah. But he would pull me into his room and be like, man, wait to hear this, it's amazing, and put yeah, on yeah, yeah. Loveless, you know, and I didn't really understand it at the time. I was kind of completely into something insanely different, you yeah. know. Um, but I would hear it and I'd sort of attempt to sort of get what he liked about that yeah, yeah. and sort of we'd have conversations about that and we grew I guess that was a cool thing as well Is I don't know about you like, but I think um, having the lexicon to be able to talk about music yeah is it feels like a real part of it to me like that for yourself and for other people yeah. Do you find that that you can actually describe what it is you want, or what it, even to your yeah to yourself? You know how to describe what it is you want. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've probably not had as many conversations about it as you, but I know what you mean. You know, sort of just being used to talking about things and describing things and sort of floating your opinions and listening to other people's opinions. It gives you that conversational skill around it, doesn't it? Which makes yeah really engaging to other people who also want to talk like that so I think so and I think like um, being able even you know at times we would argue about it (laughs) and that was really good you know really really cool yeah and then you know later on really enjoying just reading 
day in, day out reading NME because I just really enjoyed the the vehemence with which people would present their opinions. You know, that music becomes this really emotive and just just, just a, a thing that garners strong feeling. Did all that music feel sort of accessible to you, like where you were, or did you feel like remote from it? The stuff that Paul and my brother was playing? Well, just like music in general. Did you feel like it was like where you lived? It, did it feel like something that happened a long way away? Or did oh, you feel yeah, like absolutely. music happens here as well? Do you know what I mean? No, I, no, it all felt... I think that was that's interesting, actually, because I think what what Paul, what Paul, my brother, was discovering was music that he could touch and feel because it related to his direct society and what he was experiencing. You know, yeah. Morrissey songs were were describing the How much older was he environment three years. And um, but for me, yeah, music was on the other side of the ocean. You yeah, know? well, and three years at that age is quite a big, can it's a fair like chunk. Big it is a fair chunk. Um, to the point where, you know, I would read guitar magazines, and all I wanted to do was kind of disappear to, like, the Guitar Institute of Technology in LA, or you know, I had dreams of going to America. I almost did go to America to to work in a, in my aunt's music shop when I was. As I left school, you know, I kind of had that lined up, yeah. but we forgot to do the visa process and realised that it was actually <laughs> impossible for me to go to America to do that. How did you line that up? Just because, well, obviously, pre-internet and everything, the world seems a much bigger place. Did yeah, it was write my them a letter or no, my aunt uh, was in North Carolina and she, she managed direct or managed the music shop and right. um, and taught piano and she effectively said go you should you know and at that point I was becoming I guess for the point I I was at I was pretty proficient at guitar and I'd done a lot of self-study you know like I'd kind of um, I'd I'd opened up the sort of backdrop and new the theory of what I was doing to a certain extent so I had pretty fairly good understanding musically of what was going on so she was saying, "Why don't you come work in the shop, teach guitar?" And um, and I was like, "Yeah, that's what I'm going to do." So I didn't fill in any university application. I didn't do right. anything. I was just like saying, "But I'm going to America. I'm going to work in music." How are your parents guitar. about that? They were really supportive of it. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they seemed to think, "Yeah, fair dues. Off you go. It's good, good, good plan." You know. <laughs> It's just kind of looking back on it, it was nuts. I don't know. He's got a plan. Just let him do it. I know. Well, I think I think any any uh, any plan was a good plan. You know, yeah. probably otherwise yeah. they were probably just going as long as he doesn't go to the, back to the bad old days of like wrecking the place and stealing things. That would be good. You know. <laughs> so just touching back at school, did you have any like formal? Was there any sort of musical education at school? There was musical education, but I did not relate to it on any level at all, apart from, like, the, the sort of, it, apart from having a classical guitar teacher. So I took classical guitar for two years in 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 my last couple of years at school. Yeah. Um, I worked pretty hard at that. Um, knew that it probably it wasn't. I was do I was learning it for a slightly different reason to, yeah. to than to kind of. And move up the grade ladders, but yeah. I kind of, you know, I, I, I did a grade three exam and, and um, 
left it there, but it certainly kind of helped me in a load of different ways. And I kind of was with doing it because a couple of other guys had said, oh, that teacher knows a lot of rock guitar as well. You know? yeah. So he would, he would kind of show me, show me a lot of things that actually I still use to this day, you know? Yeah. And, and sort of the thought of learning pre guitar pre-internet, like, the, like if, if it was me then, and I had YouTube, yeah. I'd I'd be like in a different stratosphere in terms of playing. And even just from a technique st standpoint, you can just go on YouTube and so and, and have someone describe exactly what you should be yeah. doing, where yeah. your shoulder and where your hand should be. You know, like, like stuff that you. But do you think it's? I mean, this is this is a subject we can get onto a bit later on about the current state of music, but how that relates to you. But do you think maybe? If you were doing that now, you'd be possibly overwhelmed. You wouldn't know which direction. Having someone that you can say, I like this, and they can then kind of collate some information and give it to you rather than just being like, okay, I want to go in that direction, and here is the whole world. And you're like, shit, which... Mm -hmm. There's too much here to take in. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And I think I think there's, there's truth in the fact that limitations... Can and uh, you know, especially in terms of the creative side, creating something, doing yeah. something new. It's all about limitations. It's all about not being able to do everything and not having access to everything. Yeah. The minute you have like an endless canvas, you're screwed. Like, how do you fill that? Where do you start? What do you, you know? That's all. Yeah, yeah. There's too many questions to answer before you even put put brushed canvas. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, if you've got canvas the size of your thumb, like you, it's important what you put on it. It's important what you put on it, but you don't have a lot of space. Well, that's what I mean. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can't put everything on it, so you've got you to be particular about yeah. what you put on it. That's you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. No, it is important what you put on it, but it's like it, it would be better to to work on. Like, say you give yourself twenty canvases, like you know, like half a foot by half a foot. It's so much easier to do one than it is with one massive canvas that size. Like, yeah. you can't. How do you start with that thing? It's like, and you shouldn't. It's just like that's that's that. Don't don't start like that. Yeah. Start with something that you feel like you can toss away, and something brilliant will happen with it. Like yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's the simple fact of it is the freedom of being able to brilliant toss it things away. happen if you know you can throw it out. Yeah, and you don't care, and that's where right with other people and the whole session thing. Um, is wonderful because I don't care as much to be to be perfectly honest as I care if I'm writing on my own on my own thing and I'm getting really yeah. careful like, oh no I wouldn't say that you know actually it, 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 I'm much more able to be fast and loose when I work with other people yeah. and I do better work actually the work better <laughs> by not by not caring quite as much is you that know? why you've this is a bit flippant. Is this why you put off making any more of your own music for so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. Possibly. And um, I've learned a lot out of that. So but but yeah, you know, it is the longer it goes on, the more daunting it's like twelve years. So it does become quite daunting. Yeah. Um Can you approach it in the same way as you approach it with writing with other people? Well, a little bit in the sense that I've had to. I only get kind of a two-hour window to write something or a two or three-hour window in an evening, and I haven't even had that for a while. So 
I have to be really frivolous yeah. and start and then start with a first line and write a song. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a sort of myth behind that. And I and, and work with countless artists, you know, younger artists who come through and really feel like, oh no, I, you know, really I don't start a song until I have it in me and it, I'm ready and, you know, I feel like it's bursting out of me. And then yeah. I write the song and it happens. It's kind of like, no, no, actually, just write when you sit down to write. You can genuinely exercise that muscle at any time you choose to. Um, if you allow yourself to, it's yeah. it's it's more about you limiting your potential if you don't use your time to write. Write every day. It's the Jackson Brown school of like yeah. absolutely. Well, there's that phrase, isn't it? The harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm-hmm. You know, like by, that, by yeah. putting in the, you know. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that thing as well, the people imagine that it's not about practice like for some reason writing the art's about practice right like you don't do visual art without working your bonds off at, at understanding colour and detail and you know yeah. perspective and and uh, there's there's all manner of stuff you've got to explore to get to get good yeah but for some reason with songwriting it's kind of like yeah you just Get, sit down, pick something up, and write a song, and there you go. You got, you've got an ear song. It's either in you or it's not. Well, that's There's all the kind of, of little myth, myths. isn't it, that seems to totally. be perpetuated? Like, oh, the magic happened, and then here we are. Here's a song. Exactly. They don't talk about exactly. the other and it's fifty little... hours that are used up mm-hmm. before that magical mm-hmm. bit happened. Or... And you're either a songwriter or you're not a songwriter. There's the notion like that you're, you know, you either have it or you don't, or something. But actually, the the practice element of it is vast and huge and it's not to say that you don't write something yeah like incendiary little sparky songs that you write straight off the bat when you're super fresh yeah are brilliant but you can't build a whole career around that necessarily yeah 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 you've gotta learn how to create depth and emotion and create a field of view and um to be a songwriter, I think, you know, yeah, as a yeah. career. Like, anyway, I've digressed. No, <laughs> where were cool. we school? Well, let's take it back. <laughs> we were in school. Well, let's let's move on from school. So you didn't move to America to work in a I did music not. shop. So what what did you do? What did you do then? I um, panicked and, um, and I think my folks did too. Well, my mum did. Um, my dad was always very easy going. Um, and I did I went and did I, I studied art and art history at A level so I, I went on this art sort of foundation-y kind of course in the local tech and managed to get a place in that at the last minute and uh, I spent about three weeks on that um, where we just listened to REM and I didn't re- and I didn't really understand. It was reckoning and murmur probably with the records that yeah. were being played, and I didn't really understand it at the time. I was always been a kind of late bloomer in that sense as well, and still was sort of, you know, very invigorated about American rock guitar playing, and um, 
Well, they were pretty difficult albums. They're like, challenging they're, records. They're not the easiest records no, to get no, into, not at all. Because a lot of people not. got into it later on and then went tried to go back and was just like, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. you know, like that's too much for me. Yeah, that's it's not demanding. The REM that I want. It's demanding. Um, so there was a bit of a cultural gap between me and the other people on the on the course, and also they were really good. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> damn, I'm terrible. Um, I've not. Rem- I've been spending all my time practicing guitar and not art, you know. Yeah. Um, so I literally, I think I did a month and I applied for a job at the local Department of Education, Civil Service. My brother had worked there and a few, they take on young people from the town. Right. So it was a big, big sort of tar block and banger. And I got a job there um, as a sort of clerk's assistant or something like that. Right. And I worked there for three months until I got booted out. Um, they sort of slowly moved me out of the office that I was in and, and moved me to this kind of this registry which was in the basement and yeah. was like where all these other kids who were all the messers yeah. everybody got moved to the registry because actually there weren't in anybody's face yeah. and people just came down to get files it was brilliant like I spent about three weeks working in a registry and darkened about and brought my guitar in actually and, and sat found rooms in the basement and other made my worked there and we were um, we were in a, going to be in a band together pretty soon actually we joined the same band and uh, but then yeah I, I, I was just messing around and I put it out and the, the guy told me to go but the good thing was that a guy arriving who was really pleased to get I think he was probably getting my job um, had just left a job in the Larden Guitar Factory, which was literally right. half a mile around the corner yeah. in the local industrial estate. And Loudon, although probably then, uh, um, but they were not a particularly well-known worldwide sort of brand of guitar in Ireland. They were just revered as yeah. unbelievable, beautiful, very high-end handmade instruments. So yeah. I just went straight round. I put it out of there and walked straight round to the Loudon Factory and into the office and said, hey, I hear someone's just been kicked out. I'm your guy, you know. Have you got a job going? And they were like, "All right, come on, well, go in there and get get, get some overalls on. Let's go." And yeah. so I became, uh, yeah, general dog's body at the Loudon Guitar Factory then for probably about seven or eight months. Right. Until I realised I didn't want to be a guitar maker. Because <laughs> it was like, damn, this is really hard. Yeah. And some of the, I mean, the skill in the room was amazing. The super cool thing about being there was that every lunchtime, was, it was brilliant and beautiful. There was, a, there was a factory guitar, there were 16 guys working in the factory. You know, there were at least about 10 of them that could play beautifully, like really, yeah. really great players. And every lunchtime, we did our sandwiches like lightning so that everybody could just pass the guitar and play and like, so I'm just sitting watching these guys play, playing yeah. for them, you know, sharing ideas, sharing records. And it was probably around that time I got exposed to a lot of stuff that I, you know, a lot more songwritery stuff, actually, yeah. you know. So I remember being given like uh, a vinyl of Jackson Brown for every man at that point, you know, and taking it home and kind of not really listening to it because I was like alright oh, Morris really likes this record I better try and figure out what's going on in it. not yeah. really initially understanding it but slowly kind of gaining an appreciation of what was happening so that was really exposed me to some some good stuff 
That's quite um, interesting. What happened then? Why, why did you leave there? Well, no, at the same time, I guess what... At that point of leaving school, that summer, bands started to sprout up in Bangor. Right. And my... It's sort of probably about the time that I went went to civil service. And so... Uh, and along the way, probably something I haven't mentioned as well, is that all along the way we were churchgoers, you know, and my dad was a sort of youth pastor and a kind of, he, he, he eventually became pastor of a church. And so through all of the, those kind of youth groups and different things, I had loads of opportunities to play. And so I was playing constantly in sort of, in church environments would give me a toll very at ease with perform well not really performing but with playing in front of yeah, people. Front of people. Um, and um, and actually Northern Ireland is just a very well was then, it's not so much now, but it was a very, very churchy place. Yeah. Um, a bit like Tennessee is, you know, it's sort of there are real parallels to sort of Southern America. It's like yeah. it's a church loads of bars and loads of churches yeah. um, and lots of strict church no bullshit um, upbringings you know um, so uh, and lots of self deprecation all of those things you know some of those things being really positive and some of them being really bloody frustrating yeah. um, but the the uh, where was I? I'm trying to figure out where I was. Um, You'd left the Loud and Guitar Factory and you were in getting into bands. But I joined, well, yeah, up. yeah, even before that, I joined this band. So a friend of mine who'd put, I'd been at school with, who didn't know particularly well, but but was just a brilliant, brilliant character, you know, at school, asked me to come and play in this band. And they they spent the whole summer busking and playing at various youth events and different things. and people were they just huge charisma and so much yeah. fun about them very much com- coming out of there was that folk thing that was really starting to happen at that point like the water boys were massive right. the levelers were soon to come out wonder yeah. stuff were huge you know there was a kind of two four country yeah. folk thing that was really really kicking off and they were very much dressed and like embodied the spirit of that whole thing you know yeah. Um, so, so they asked me to come on board and play guitar, which I did, and, it, and that was a fantastic experience for me because I didn't really have the at that point I didn't really have the reference points at all to yeah. join that band. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't. The stuff that I thought was good was not what they thought was good, yeah. you know. But I could see that they were just brilliant personalities, great people, you know. Um, smart yeah. and it was enough for me to sort of and I think that's maybe part of what I do as well is I'm able to sort of if I'm if I see that I'm like alright what have you got I'm kind of interested yeah, this yeah. is cool you know I yeah. can see where brilliance lies you know um, and I know when not to trot on it or like <laughs> impose my yeah. what can I bring you yeah. know that's quite a that is a characteristic that not everybody not everybody has Think, or it's almost quite rare. I think a radar for that is probably yeah. It it and and it's hard 
we're all doing that dance all the time, aren't we? In conversation and everything else. It's like, when do I assert? When do I impose? And when do I um, listen and, and yeah. absorb, you know? Yeah. And, and, and conversation in a way gets really good, just like songwriting or anything else gets really good when you build on what someone else brings. Like that's, that's where it's ace and really yeah. fun and and where it's doesn't mean that things don't come out of ten, like you know argument arguments like I was saying about yeah, yeah, my brother yeah. cool things come out of that too you learn stuff and sometimes you need to get a punch in the nose to find out what it feels like to have a punch in the nose you know but like <laughs> which is which is actually jackknife please I'm, 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 I'm stealing that from 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 jackknife sign off on his emails <laughs> When Jack Nash sends me an email and says sometimes you have to get a punch in the nose to find out what it feels like to get a punch in the nose. <laughs> Wait, what, a, what a fucking line that That's is. brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's true. It's so true. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, that's, that, that's the deal, really, you know? Um, so, yeah, a little bit of conflict. A lot of good songs for me have come out of sort of slightly conflict-oriented environments as well. You know, yeah. it hasn't been easy, but actually... Lots of great, great songs and conversations and everything come out of taking something someone brings, putting something together with it. And that's what we did. You know, that band, that band got really, really exciting. And right. so we, we absolutely kicked off. And so during that time where I was kind of civil service, loud guitars, we were on the rise, playing a lot of banger and then suddenly kind of really aspirational we went to Belfast it was a big deal for right, us we yeah, like a Belfast yeah. band um, and started to get big crowds and it all started to kind of go pretty well what were uh, they called? Dorothy Fields right. we were originally called Dorothy Forbes but uh, which was the name of our keyboard player's mom and right. <laughs> but we had to change the name because uh his dad was really high up in the in the police. Oh right, mm -hmm. I see. And so the, they were like, guys, this is like a security thing. Like you can't just go blasting that you know that, that you're the the son of a really big <laughs> police captain. <laughs> so so we we're like, right, what we do? Then we later realised that Dorothy Hill is a very famous jazz songwriter, you know. Right. And so we've just yeah. adopted her name. And um, anyway, yeah, that that went that went that went incredibly well until we sort of blew apart inevitably um, the night before our biggest showcase where London like A&R were coming to yeah it really is you know I've kind of thought that did they write the commitments off I you know <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it was it, it was probably equally as fraught and hilarious <laughs> to be honest so yeah yeah th those are the kind of early days and, and and I've looked back a lot and I'd see Johnny the singer from that band we're, we're really good pals these days we we, we we had a difficult patch after the sort of demise of the band but I see him now um, as much as we both can and I think there's definite acknowledgement that that was that was a real thing you know yeah, yeah. really really seismic sort of so much potential in that band and yet Everybody was a little bit irresponsible with one another, you know, yeah, yeah. as you are when you're teenage. Is that just the folly of youth like that? Yeah. Although I think there's maybe a couple of characters who would still be. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> equally as irresponsible with other people but yeah it's it's sad and I don't, I'm intrigued as to how other bands survive that because obviously there's a lot of them that do um, have enough glue and you probably need good mediators and you probably need a couple of people who have a bit of wisdom in the mix to sort of help you to push past those things you know yeah but when we get onto some of your other career aspects we can probably get into that a bit totally okay so where did it go from there uh band split up i went to i know the band was still the guy i went to uni um, for three years, studied uh, social sciences degree, human communication. Where did you do um, that? In Belfast and George and George University of Ulster. So, so yeah, as of sort of went there, st- stayed at home, lived in Bangor, went to the university up there for first year, and then moved to Belfast from second year. I think probably the band fell apart somewhere towards the end of that first year. Yeah, um, and. The great thing about the band, I guess, that that band experience was that we started writing songs together as well. Yeah. So, all a, a lot of energy put into into that, and the songs worked, and and it was a very collaborative thing. But all the all long period of of ple- like shredding guitar and learning to play blues and you know you know all all that stuff that I'd done, I'd been picking up an acoustic guitar in the house. And at moments where I was melancholy or I had something to express or a girl had dumped me or whatever, I'd sat down with this thing and poured a little bit out and yeah. played some chords. And because, you know, my listener, I, I didn't really have a context for what I was doing. It didn't really feel that cool to me, that thing, but it was, it was, it was catharsis. Yeah. So I played this stuff. It was all very cathartic, but I didn't really see it as the thing, the song, song, the thing that that I wanted to be doing. You know, just even sonically, what an acoustic guitar and a voice was. I didn't have a context yeah. for it, to be honest. Like I, I had not been exposed to enough music in that idiom to know that that was a thing. Actually, that was that was right. one hole right. in my listening experience. Actually, I think. Or, or, or it just felt a little bit like oh, this, this is a cack in it, you know, whatever. But uh, one thing, the, the, a couple of things that happened over that that period of time of being at uni were um, discovering we'd we'd always had uh, Saint Dominic's Saint Dominic's preview, Van Morrison's Dominic's preview in the house. That's one of the records that my dad always had. Um, and I'd all, always enjoyed the kind of sparkier tunes on that, Jackie Wilson said, yeah. um, and I'll be there. But then, I don't know, we started to realize that there's just this thing around Astral Weeks as well. So we started listening, you know, it was that period of being a student, you start to get into records that are m- more cerebral. and Yeah, yeah. And then my other mate, comes back with Joni Mitchell Blue and starts playing that and I'm like like literally hearing I can remember hearing that from the other room going what is that that is uh, like there's an angel in the world like literally an angel this is this phenomenal just this, the melodies the lyrics and then these sort of otherworldly backing vocals it sounded 
really odd. Yeah, really, really had to grapple with. You know, it was really that. That was really striking. I went, I, I went off on a family holiday. It was just me and my parents actually, where we we stayed in in a in a house. They just it was a bit like an Airbnb kind of thing. These people had rented out their house while we went on holiday in the north coast of Ireland. This guy was a university lecturer in, 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 in up there and had this incredible record collection. He had loads of John Martin records. Right. And I'd been in, I'd listened to a little bit of John Martin before, partly because such a great guitar player, you yeah. know. But then I started to pull out these John Martin records and all I did in the holiday was just sit and I just taped these <laughs> taped these John Martin records and absolutely fell in love. Like just blew my tiny mind. Um, the soundscapes the voice, the writing, and it goes from being really improvisational and and really not about songwriting at all to being deeply about songwriting. You know, yeah. so 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 a lot of you know very very beautiful music to to delve into. The reason why I mention all that is because all of that started to contextualize what I had been doing on my own in my melancholy moments yeah. with acoustic guitar I was like oh people have made a career out of doing that, <laughs> that. and you can also incorporate a lot of guitar listen to John Martin you can incorporate a lot of guitar skill into this thing whilst writing very genuine songs about yeah. your own feelings be one person and I kind of had a sense by that stage that actually being in a band might not particularly be for me because right. I have strong I have strong ideas and I'm, I'm not a particularly uh, um, confrontational person right. in other aspects but I, but when it comes to music I have strong right strong when they're right they're right you know like yeah, yeah. strong ideas like that I'm not I don't impose all of them on anybody and it's like you're constantly listening for genius but when there are brick walls or things aren't coming together, I kind of have strong ideas about what we should do. And if they're not yeah. listened to, I'm like, I'm happy to shake the dust off. There's not a, there's no bitterness involved. But I'm yeah. like, okay, it's cool. Why don't you don't? But but I've got ideas. So being a singer songwriter, that seemed that seemed pretty appealing, really, okay. at that point. Then how so did that's that manifest itself? Did you then start singing and songwriting? Or performing as a singer-songwriter? I, I started writing a lot. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I started writing a lot on my own. And there was an artist called Brian Kennedy who was becoming massive in Northern Ireland at the time, who was a huge influence on a few of us, who went on to become a very camped-up kind of cabaret kind of songwriter but he made a record at the very beginning that was produced by Tim Freese Green who worked with Talk Talk and all yeah. of that stuff and uh, called The Great War of Words which is a beautiful record it's a phenomenal record and that um, that was also a big a big influence at the time where it was like hey it's a Belfast guy who was doing this thing you know it was a big influence to a lot of people but um, I then got got a call from uh, a guy called Brian Houston who's kind of like Belfast Bruce Springsteen you know he's, right. he's, a, he's, a, he's a kind of phenomenally charged 
performer and, and great songwriter and still very, very active, um, who had a band at the time called Mighty Fall. And the drummer in that band was Johnny Quinn, who went on to be drummer at uh, Snow Patrol. Of course, yeah. So while I was at university, he called me up and said, will you come and try out for the band? Our guitarist is gone. So I was like, yeah. So I went, I went along, did, did an audition, so joined that band, and then we went on trips to London to, to do, you know, like demo sessions for Rondor music, yeah. various publishers, loads of management means. They were quite, quite, they were a big band in Belfast at the time. Yeah. Dorothy feels our band would have been sort of competent in some way competition the mighty fall and that is probably one of the reasons why our the fallout may not be in the band anymore it's quite quite difficult but um we uh johnny and i got very good johnny who was drumming we got very tight at that point yeah. so we, we just listened to the same records hanging out all the time just buzzing off all the same stuff and then he moved in the student house in the last the last year of university, so we were just hanging all the time playing. Yeah. And then Brian sacked us from the band <laughs> because I don't know, I don't really know why, because the band was going great, things were good. Um, I'll have to ask him sometime. Why, why actually did you sack us from the band? Um, but he sacked us both in the same day, and so we started playing together a little bit. Yeah, my stuff. Um, uh, band, my brother's band, those different things, and then Johnny got a call from Gary and Mark, who were then Polar Bear, and they were at Dundee University from Belfast, and had just signed a deal with Jeepster Records. So he right. called Johnny, you come to Dundee and play. We just signed a deal. We need a drummer. So it was like, see you, Johnny, nice one, sounds cool, you know, and, you know, that was a big. That, that was a that was a cool cool, cool opportunity Johnny, for him like, they didn't the but Johnny was just I think there were if you were kind of going to go for a, a drummer of that age in Belfast at that time you know we were busy all the time we were playing with different people and just yeah. in town and we're, you know so I think if someone needed someone he was the guy to call yeah he was the guy to call Um. And around the same time... Did you feel bereft? Oh, no, 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 because around the same time, um, I... I got a call as well, and, and, and so I ended up signing a record deal straight off the back of final year of university. Um, I signed a record deal with a, with a Scottish indie record label as well. Um, they... So... so I started being managed by this phenomenal um, person during that during that year, I guess that final year, who was a Presbyterian minister. He was he was like the uh, um, what's the right chaplain, Presbyterian chaplain at Queen's right. University, Steve Stockman, still like phenomenal music head, has a radio show on on Radio Ulster um, right. and. Uh, has written a book about you too. You know, he's he's, he's he's brilliant. The biggest, you know, record not I know. Um, 
but Steve saw for some reason saw a lot of potential in what I was doing on my own and said I'll manage you I'll 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 let it help you know yeah and uh, so he yeah we so so he kind of managed to pull together this this record deal with um this record company called Sticky Music um who were intrinsic like essentially a band called Lies Damned Lies who uh, had a pretty um, substantial career and made some great records alongside the kind of Talk Talks and Blue Niles and all that kind of thing they're very much not more really cool you know stuff that I I was super into as well Um, and so I moved to Glasgow and just started making a record at that point so Johnny went to Dundee I moved to Glasgow did you have that feeling like, yeah, right, now it's on, now it's happening? Or was it a bit of a, yeah, this is, this could all... No, I had a real, I had a real feeling because things happened very, very quickly. And I, I was, there was a fest, there was a festival called Green Milk that I played maybe twice before. And when I played it that year, just as we were, it sort of, the, the deal happened straight after that festival, but literally there was a kind of massive reaction to what I was doing right. like I must have played I had about five opportunities to play at that festival that year yeah, yeah. and at every gig people couldn't get in it was sort of like oh, wow. really it was it was, it was pretty it was phenomenal at the time actually in terms of for me it was like Jesus, what's what's happening you know this is really yeah. clicking um, and so yeah, that label like we're making a record. We made the record. Simon Mayo picked up on our single, made it his his radio one single of the week for two weeks running. He was like, wow. at the end of the week, he's like, I'm going to do this again. No yeah, way. And and um, but there just weren't the kind of gears within our infrastructure to totally capitalize on that. Yeah, to build yeah. on it to do the next thing. So. But there was a lot. There was a lot that came from that, and then I went, and then basically, the label said, eh, "You're going on the road with John Martin." So wow. that then blew my tiny mind. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I <was> like what? <laughs> um, so I went out with Miriam. I met Miriam during that time as well. At um, very, yeah, just around that time we we first met. So like. About six months later, I went on the road. The record was done, out, mastered. We were kind of just releasing it, and I went on a support tour with John, um, which was just huge, massive. And, and, and the music all gelled beautifully with what he did. So we just sold masses of records every night on the road with John. And, and was it meeting your hero? Was that... Was it... A- positive experience like was he was he what you hoped he would be um he was what I imagined he'd be uh, at that time because I'd, I'd been to see him a couple of times live and I knew you know to look at him like he's not a dude to be trifled with you know right um and was also like on a on, on a, a voyage to oblivion <laughs> like to some extent you know you could sort of uh, 
see that about about his character, you know, um, prob- probably probably self confessedly in a way. Um, so, and I was brought on to this tour. Uh, the guy had, I, I think, maybe quite 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 rapidly because another guy had opened up, and John had, I think, you know, held him against a wall, and, right. and, and it had all gotten a little bit. Yeah. Um, rambunctious to some degree and uh, so it was kind of like don't go any, anywhere near Joe right. just don't don't interact, don't do anything just play your show stay out of the way so that's what I did but right. slowly but sure, Miriam and I both were on the tour, Miriam was singing with me my wife Miriam um, and uh but slowly but surely we got to know the band really well and then slowly but surely you know about 10 dates in there'd be the odd moment of sort of saying hi to John or whatever and by the end of it John was we were drinking whiskey and singing Spencer the Rover together you know it was it was it was absolutely sublime to be honest you know yeah and he's he he was just brilliant what a lovely flipping bear of a man you know yeah. brilliant character phenomenal um, so we had we ended up having a lot of fun but it, it took knowing just understanding what you are as a support yeah. act and I think yeah, that's yeah. maybe what happened before was someone just didn't have a clue yeah. how to handle that situation so it was a good learning process with that you know but it yeah all of that put what I did I mean I have, I've got so many people to be grateful for for that spot yeah. but it effectively just well, the, the entire message that came back to me was you've got a career in music you know yeah. you can do that people believe in you you've you know there's a support network and there's somewhere to go did you ever have did you ever feel like yeah I'm just making this up as I go along like did you have a, like imposter syndrome about it or did you feel quite sort of naturally sort of seated in in that world that's a good question. Like I'd say, probably loads of times I felt like, what am I, what am I doing? You know, um, and I, and I had a really difficult relationship with the first record, actually, right. um, and that I find that really challenging because uh, it didn't really reflect what I was doing as much as I probably hoped it did. It was very, very, it it was a super sweet, um, smooth sort of um, reflection of it. Um, So in that sense, I had sort of frustrations. The imposter syndrome thing, I have absolutely 100% felt on huge amounts of occasions um, and do I would say do more so these days than then because yeah. I think at that time I was just in a kind of youthful wave of I don't I don't think I even thought about you know whether I should be there or not I was just yeah. having a great time yeah <laughs> I was just having such a good time doing what I was doing there seemed to be and the response, everything was positive. Yeah. So in a way, 
And I think this is the danger about those things is that you get caught up in your own wave and um, you start to feel like you can't really do anything wrong. You so know? How did you manage to avoid that? Well, these things came crashing. <laughs> oh, we just haven't reached that point yet, right? <laughs> things just uh, things just fell apart. Um, So that's into part one. Please join us. Part two is up online right now. And we'll see you on that side of it.